The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Hi, everyone, and welcome. My name is Ariana Simpson, and I am a partner on the crypto team here at Andreessen Horowitz. On behalf of our firm and the Stanford Center for Blockchain Research, we want to thank you for joining us today. We are super excited to spend the next two hours together exploring all things NFT. Those of us who are deep in the crypto space have been talking about NFTs for years now, but they've only recently entered the mainstream and received a lot of attention. We're seeing NFTs in sports, entertainment, art, collectibles, and more. While high sales volumes have captured the headlines, what excites us about NFTs is the underlying technology that accelerates the trend of artists, musicians, designers, authors, and other types of creators monetizing directly with their fans. Our goal for this summit is to not only address some of the core concepts behind NFTs and their applications, but also to push your thinking about the future of NFTs and their impact on society and culture. Today, I'm lucky to be joined by some of the best NFT builders, thinkers, and creators, and we have a packed agenda of fascinating discussions. In just a moment, my partner Chris Dixon will join me on stage with Stanford computer science professor Dan Bonet, and we will dig into why NFTs matter and their impact on the future of the digital ownership economy. Next, we'll hear from Kayvon Turanian from Foundation to explore some fascinating case studies and learn more about the new creative economy that has emerged thanks to NFTs. And Dan Bonet and Dieter Shirley from Dapper Labs will discuss the origin story of NBA Top Shot and the architecture of the Flow blockchain that made it all possible. We will take a brief break and then Chris Dixon will be joined by Kevin Chu from Rally to look at the interplay between NFTs and social tokens and the viability of NFTs beyond collectability. Our general partner, Katie Hahn, will chat with Devin Fincer from OpenSea to take us into the future of NFTs and explore potential use cases that many of us may not yet have considered. We will then welcome on stage one of the best known NFT artists, People Pleaser. We encourage you to stick with us until the end. Rumor has it that People Pleaser will be dropping a new NFT that she created just for this event. You won't want to miss that. Before we begin, just a few housekeeping items. We welcome and encourage your participation throughout the summit. To submit a question for our speakers, please use the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, and we will try to get to as many questions as possible. Also, we will be recording all of these sessions, and they will be available on our YouTube page after the event. In the coming days, we will send an email with more details on where you can find this and other crypto content from our team. Finally, you will notice my virtual background, which is an NFT from the artist known as Aegean, who is one of my favorite digital creators. Many of our other speakers will also be featuring their own NFTs as backgrounds. Now, without further ado, I would like to invite Chris Dixon and Dan Bonet on stage to kick off our discussion on the new digital ownership economy. Thanks, Ariana. Thanks, Ariana. Hello, everyone. Awesome. Hello, Thank everyone. you guys Welcome. for joining. Great. So I think in terms of the best place for us to start, um, it would be helpful to get a very high level overview of what NFTs are, 
why they're the hottest topic in crypto. So Chris, I'll start it off with you. What is an NFT? Can you define it for us? Yeah, I mean, so an NFT is, is a digital object that a, that a user can actually own. Um, and so until NFTs, you could have objects in, you know, something like a video game, let's say, like Fortnite, or maybe in a sort of a social network, you'd have a profile or some other thing you kind of feel like you own, or maybe, a, you know, like a Twitter handle or something. But the reality is you don't really own it uh, in, in the old model of the web, right? You're, you're using a service and you're sort of at their whim, and maybe the service goes away or they change the rules or who knows what they do. With NFTs, you actually own it. So if you buy an NFT, I own this NFT behind me. It's the artist uh, as far as I think it's. I actually don't know how to say as far as. Um, I only I've only read it. Um, the uh, and, and it's an NFT. It's a you know a digital artist created that on on foundation. Um, and that's my NFT. I can I can put it in my, my Zoom background. I can you know do other kinds of things with it. And I think increasingly what we'll see is we'll see more and more services that let you do cool things with them. So maybe you take your CryptoPunk into a game, or you take you know, a piece of art into a, into the central land, or you do, and I, I think a, an, another way to think about it is we're sort of re-architecting, hopefully, if this, if this all works, to re-architecting the web to be a user and object kind of first, and then the applications created around it, as opposed to what the web's been so far, which is applications first, and sort of the owners of the applications, like the corp, the companies behind them, and then the users and the objects kind of second secondary to that. Um, so that's one idea. Another way to look at it just briefly is also from the creative perspective. So if you're a musician or artist, until now, you you were, um, you know, the ways you would make money on the internet were mostly mediated through large platforms, through social networks that have algorithmic feeds, that have ads, you know, through large services that like Spotify and things that, you know, do, you know, kind of that take the bulk of the revenues for themselves or for labels and the sort of, you know, for the most part, if you talk to, for example, musicians, they're, they're uh, at least pre-pandemic, making a lot of their money offline because that's in the offline world, they can sell merchandise and things, whereas online is sort of beholden to these very large centralized services. Um, for the creators, what NFT lets, NFTs let them do is, is have business models that are much more like the offline models, where they can actually sell things directly to their fans. And a relatively small set of, um, uh, of kind of super enthusiastic fans can provide a great business model for a lot of these creators. Um, and so, and, and that, that I think we're only at the early phases of it, but I think, you know, if this trend trend continues and this kind of ecosystem continues to get built out, we could see some really, uh, uh, kind of dramatically improved business models and economics for creative people, um, which in turn could unlock, you know, I think a new wave of kind of creativity on the internet. Um, so, you know, we'll dive into all these things. It's very, it's a nuanced, uh, large topic, but I think at a high level, to me, at least this is why it's important. Dan, from your perspective, you know, I'm curious to get a sense for why you think NFTs, which are not necessarily a brand new idea, have sort of exploded into mainstream consciousness, um, in recent months. Do you have any idea of, of why that might be happening now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, Ariana, thanks for uh, hosting this event. This is uh, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Your idea, Dan. We're, we're thrilled you had the idea and thrilled yeah. to be hosting with you. So Yeah, and actually, maybe just before I answer your question, I wanted to give a quick shout out uh, for uh, for our research center. If anybody's interested in research questions, feel free to uh, uh, reach out. And there's also a blockchain club if folks are interested in reaching out to uh, to students. So this is a, a, you know, a great opportunity to learn about NFTs. Uh, just before I get to your question, Ariane, I also wanted to mention the A16Z NFT Canon, 
which is a wonderful collection of resources, uh, Canon with a double N, um, wonderful collection of resources to learn about NFTs, uh, which I think is kind of the goal of, of, of today's events. If people want to read more about uh, what the NFT space is like and what it's about, that's a wonderful uh, collection of resources. So you're asking, so what's exciting about that? Like, why, why is it happening now? Um, Maybe I can maybe I can first say that um, I'm kind of excited about about it because it's a wonderful application from blockchain technology. So you know I'm a cryptographer. I'm I'm into technology technological ideas and technology in general. Um, and so so far, blockchains have primarily been used in the world of finance, right? Because um, blockchains are sort of used in environments where there's no single trusted party. You want to decentralize trust, and financial applications are a really good fit for that. Uh, and you know we've kind of been looking for more areas where blockchains can be can be applied, and you know there are nascent efforts in like file storage and gaming, which maybe we'll talk about later. But all of a sudden NFTs kind of exploded, and they're like a perfect application for blockchains. Interestingly, the reason they're such a good fit and blockchains are such a good fit for NFTs is because of the permanence of the blockchain, right? Something you put on the blockchain today will stay on it forever. So I think the the Bitcoin and Ethereum blockchains are going to be with humanity now forever. You know, in the year 3000, you know, the era of uh, Futurama, we're still going to be looking at the Ethereum and Bitcoin blockchains. Maybe they won't be called that. You know, maybe instead of ETH2, we'll be on to ETH15. Uh, but the data on that we put on them today will still be available even in the year 3000. And I think that's really important to understand. When you buy an NFT today, that NFT is yours forever until you give it away, until you sell it or give it away. So if you don't sell it and you keep it yourself to yourself, even in the year 3000, it's still going to be yours or your descendants. Um, and that, that permanence, I think, is really, uh, really uh, plays a critical role in why blockchains are such a good fit, uh, fit for NFTs. I think we'll get into that a bit, uh, a bit more later as well. I think it's also very important to understand exactly what it is actually that you're buying when you're buying an NFT. And again, this is something that I'd like to discuss, and we will discuss that uh, a little bit uh, a little bit later. So anyhow, I think the the ideas for digital assets is that's like you said, Ariana. The idea for digital asset is not something new that's been around for a while. In fact, it's interesting. Even in 1993, Hal Finney wrote a blog post. Believe it or not, in 1993, wrote a blog wrote, wrote a blog post about uh, crypto trading cards. Right, uh, except this was ahead of its time. Um, and uh, the technology just, just wasn't there. The tools weren't there. Uh, the ecosystem wasn't there. And what's happened over the last couple of years is basically everything came together. This, NFTs didn't happen overnight. Yeah, it took a long time for the blockchain community to mature, for the technology to mature. It took a long time for the tools to develop. Um, and then, you know, even if you look at the, at the core uh, mechanism of what is an e NFT, the ERC-721 standard, even that dates back to 2018. It took, you know, that had to be, that had to be standardized as well. And so it took a confluence of events to come together and all of a sudden NFTs are now um, very well supported by blockchains. And that's why we're seeing such a big, such a big explosion. So we can talk a little bit, I hope we can, later we can talk a little bit about um, why it's such a good idea to put an NFT on a blockchain, uh, but maybe I'll stop now and... Uh, Sure, sure. No, so many exciting ideas to unpack. I think we'll we'll definitely circle back to a few of those. Um, Chris, I guess from your perspective, you know, uh, NFTs allow for programmable ownership. It's one of their more exciting features. 
Um, for example, it's possible to add a fee on transfer for a secondary sale of an NFT that returns part of the purchase price to the NFT's original creator. So I'm curious from your perspective, what are some programmable ownership structures that you find particularly exciting? Chris, I think we. Sorry, oops. <laughs> um, you mentioned one. Can you hear me now? Sorry. Um, you mentioned one, which is, I think, a really exciting idea. The idea that um, uh, a creator, you know, will can participate in the economics not just on the initial sale, but in the following sales, right? Which would be, I think, a, a big, uh, uh, you know, kind of improvement for a lot of creator economics. Um, you can imagine, and that's just the, we're at the very beginning of that. Um, and by the way, I'll throw out some ideas here. But I, you know, as with all technology, I expect all the best ideas will be created by entrepreneurs and as opposed to um, people like me pontificating about the future. But um, um, I think, you know, gaming is another really interesting area where like today, if you have a virtual good, you you own it in the game and it has certain properties and maybe, you know, the gun shoots faster or, you know, you have a magical sword or something with like additional abilities. Um, but you can imagine all of that kind of uh, functionality being coded in, in, into the object itself as opposed to into the game and therefore um, is portable across experiences, right? Um, and I think that's very important. You know, if you haven't listened to it, I, uh, Tim Sweeney, you know, the founder of Epic, which makes Fortnite, among other things, has this incredible podcast where he talks about all the things you need for a real metaverse um, and a metaverse where, you know, as he defines it, people can really earn income. This is very important. Like this is where it goes beyond kind of just having fun, right? You're talking about people actually like making an income. And if you're going to have an experience where people are, are, are making incomes digitally in a metaverse-like experience, um, they need to be able to, you know, sell things of value that are not just sort of, you know, cosmetic things that look a certain way, but actually have certain functionality, right? And so that's one of the really cool things about NFTs to me is that you can embed kind of both the noun and the verb, right? The noun is the thing and the verb is the action. And one action, we've just begun to explore. One action is the idea of like sharing revenue over time, but it's software. Like people will come up with all sorts of other interesting verbs, right? We're just beginning. Think about how fungible tokens have evolved over time, right? We started with Bitcoin, we had Ethereum, it was programmable, then we had staking and we had governance and we had all this other, like, imagine there's, you know, a crypto punk Senate hearing, you know, like the crypto punk, the 10,000 get together and they have a, you know, they, they have a governance system and like, you already have like cool experiments happening, you know, when they have experiences built around them and new, you know, airdrops that are based on that. It's like, so I think we're just so early and it's, and it's exciting. Like just, I, I just excited to see like what all the creative, entrepreneurs come up with. Um, but I think one of the lessons, we've seen it in crypto already in the fungible side, if you think about you know what's happening in DeFi as an example, is when you give smart people all over the world uh, you know, a semi-Turing complete programming platform, they come up with all sorts of amazing stuff that you know I, I would never have dreamed of at least, right? Uh, I mean, think about AMMs. I remember having debates years ago about how you do order book-based DEXs and then, you know, Hayden and Uniswap folks and a bunch of other people come up with this new idea of, you know, new architecture. It's just, you know, who would have, I wouldn't have thought of it. Like it's amazing what happened. So that, yeah. that's, I think just where I think we're just scratching the surface of the programmability of NFTs. Yeah. Uh, so I do. No, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's why we have the best job in the yeah. world personally. Um, so uh, Chris, to kind of loop back to what you mentioned on, um, on the universe of DeFi and Uniswap and AMMs and all of that. I think there's an interesting, um, you know, obviously DeFi and NFTs are two of the areas yeah. that have really taken off in the last year in particular in crypto. And one of the characteristics of DeFi that has contributed to its rapid growth is this idea of composability. So when every piece is permissionless, you can take advantage of um, 
arbitrage opportunities or connect various pieces of the stack in ways that are much more open than what you would see in the traditional financial system. So NFTs also have some of these elements of composability. So I'm curious how both of you actually see um, you know, composability within NFTs and whether we've only scratched the surface of that or what your view is on how that piece will evolve. Maybe Dan, do you want to kick us yeah, off? Sure, yeah, I can, I can start. So, so really kind of what you're asking is, uh, what do you do with an NFT once you own it? Yeah? Sure. Um, and so, I mean, the, the obvious things to do, of course, is you can hold it, you can display it uh, to, to, to other people, or you can sell it. Those are kind of the obvious things to do. But the amazing thing is once you have an NFT, you can actually do other things with it. So for example, you might think about um, building an entire DeFi ecosystem around NFTs. And we see that actually emerging. So for example, if you own an NFT, you can borrow against that NFT as collateral. Basically, you can mortgage your NFT. And already we're seeing some uh, companies doing that. Um, you can lend out your NFT maybe for a month, and then maybe you collect interest on whoever borrows your NFT for that period. You can imagine uh, a world of uh, you know, NFT derivatives, NFT index funds, right? People could take a bunch of NFTs that are very popular, build a basket and, and, call, and make an index fund out of that. And we're seeing all that happening, right? There are companies who are literally doing that right now, right? So that's, I think, what you're referring to when you say composability of NFTs. You don't just hold the NFT. You can basically use it uh, as, as, as an asset and then just treat it as an asset and trade with it. So the way that's actually done is, in principle, you can take an NFT, which is a, uh, a non-fungible token, and you can wrap it inside of an ERC-20, which is actually fungible. And once it's wrapped in an ERC-20, you can actually start using it in traditional, uh, traditional DeFi. So that's, that's pretty interesting. And I think we're going to be seeing things like fractional ownership of NFTs. Again, there are people who are already doing this. We're going to see uh, enhancements to NFTs. So you can buy an NFT, and then there could be an aftermarket for enhancing it. Like this image that you have, your background image, Ariana, you can imagine an artist actually looks at this background image and says, wow, this is really cool, but why don't we add these little uh, widgets to it? And that could be like a composable uh, NFT that you know the, 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 the uh, aftermarket for add-on is, uh, is itself an NFT. Um, and so the, the possibilities are, are endless. I mean, we're going to be we're going to be seeing these NFTs uh, effectively used as digital assets, and you know, being used as traditional, uh, you know, being uh, uh, traded and expanded and extended as traditional assets are. Uh, and it's really only just the beginning now. Yeah, I, I think that makes total sense, and I'm I'm personally super excited to see kind of what entrepreneurs build in this category because I think you know it's very much day one in in this uh, in this realm. Um, we're getting tons of audience questions, which I'm very excited about. So maybe I'll transition and, and start uh, sending over a few of those. Um, all right, let's see. How does the immutability of the ledger survive if quantum ever achieves its potential? Maybe oh, I'll wow. got the, this, is a, this is a softball for Dan here. So that was, I yeah, know, yeah. I was, I was going <laughs> to lob it over to Dan. Maybe yeah, thank you. Stop. Thank you, Ariana. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great, as a cryptographer, that's a great question to be, to be asking. Thank you for asking that. Um, so the, the, the whole point of a blockchain is permanence, right? So if quantum computers are ever built, yes, they will be able to affect the signature algorithm that's used for securing assets on blockchains today. 
But not to worry, uh, we have other signature algorithms that are actually quantum resistant. So even if you have a quantum computer, those algorithms, those signature algorithms are gonna remain secure. So all that would happen is, you know, as we get closer to actually seeing that quantum computers are on the horizon, uh, what will happen is we'll just tradition, tra transition from the signatures that we use today to signatures that are quantum resistant. And then those will remain secure even in the year 3000, yeah? So your assets will be, uh, will be safe in yours um, uh, forever. So the, the, again, the point is your asset is tied to a crypto key and no one can steal your asset unless they have your crypto key or you give them permission. That's kind of the basic property of what's happening here, yeah? Perfect. Just, just right. to well, be, just to, Dan's being too modest here because he's he's the pioneer of a lot of quantum resistant cryptography. But the, the key the key point, right, Dan, is it's sort of a Moore's law for qubits, so you can kind of see ahead of time uh, when quantum computers will get there. And more, most importantly, there already are, as you your own team has developed, quantum resistant crypto cryptographic uh, signatures uh, methods signatures. So so I don't know. Just let's let's dispel. There's there's lots of fud in crypto. That's one type of FUD we should dispel that concern around quantum. I know, uh, that's why I, I plucked that question out of the pile just to make sure everyone was <laughs> on the same page about it. Um, great, so um, moving on to the next one. Um, how important is true decentralized permanent storage for NFTs? So um, this question asker mentioned Arweave, um, some of the other solutions. So you know, when do we think we'll get there and how important is that for NFTs? Yeah, it's a great question. So that's another, that's another, uh, if you go to the sort of viral Twitter FUD threads, that's another one line of attack that the people use, but which of course is, is you know, look, it's early. Um, and, and a lot of people who have been in the space do not expect everything to get so popular so quickly. And so there needs to be some, some more thought around standards to make sure that, you know, there's sort of a, there's sort of uniform, I believe there needs to be kind of uniform processes around this, but this is, this is all a solvable problem. So the metadata, be stored. I think ideally it was stored on a decentralized storage platform, um, which are essentially blockchains that are optimized for that use case. And that could be Filecoin or Arweave or you know, a bunch of others. Those blockchains exist. They're live. I think it's really just a coordination question of like setting the right standards. Um, and I think we should do that so that we don't have, you know, we, the community should do that. Um, so we don't have, uh, you know, people that unhappy people at some point who don't feel, you know, don't have their data stored properly. And generally, yeah. I mean, decentralization is pretty critical to the permanence of the blockchain. If it was, if just think for a minute, what would happen if the if the blockchain was was centralized, fully centralized? That would mean that when the company that manages the blockchain goes out of business, all those assets could disappear, right? I mean, that's yeah. the issue with centralization. You're dependent, you're beholding to this one. one yeah, they, they could disappear, or they could change the rules, right? They could, or change the take rate, or do you know some other thing that that lessens the ownership of the user, right? Yeah, so decent, yeah, decentralization is, is really critical for the longevity uh, and the permanence of the blockchain. I, I, that's the only way we know how to achieve it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I will um, I will kind of interlude with a quick, a small question. Um, somebody asked if we could define an AMM for them. Yeah. That's a little, I, I, sorry, maybe I shouldn't have gone into DeFi on the NFT summit. <laughs> Maybe we'll maybe we'll follow up with like a link to it's an automated market maker. We'll follow up with a link for those interested, uh, just so we don't kind of go off topic. But that we'll make sure we follow up. Great, awesome. Um, let's see. 
Uh, question for all speakers. How much have you personally spent on NFT? Mm-hmm. Is it tens, hundreds, or thousands? I've spent thousands. I'll yeah, start. I'm, I'm an avid. <laughs> I'm pretty avid. The only constraint for me, right? We have a we're a regulated entity, so I have to get to go through jump through various hoops to, to do that. But I think we're going to get that ironed out. Um, I, look, I just I, I I will say it's the first time I've ever personally had an interest in uh, in sort of collecting uh, creative I, offline creative goods. Don't really appeal to me the way that online do. So I'm far. I'm, I would call myself an avid enthusiast collector. Great. We can also come back to that and ask ask the other speakers what they what they think. <laughs> yeah, do a, a more comprehensive poll. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Get a get a good sense. Awesome. Um, great. Well, I think unfortunately we are out of time. I feel like we could talk all day, but thank you both so much. Um, we are now going to be moving over to the next session in which Kayvon from Foundation is going to um, be giving us an overview of the creator economy. So. Um, let's get started. All right. Thank you so much, Chris and Dan. Uh, we are moving straight into the next session. Um, speaker, uh, Kayvon Terranian from Foundation is going to be giving us an overview, as I mentioned, of the creator economy. Foundation, for those who might not know, is a platform to discover and invest in digital artwork. It's a creative playground for artists, curators, and collectors to experience the new creative economy. So I will hand it over to you, Kayvon. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ariana, for having me. One second. Can everyone see this? Perfect. So this is this is foundation. Um, we are building the new creative economy. And how are we doing that? We are allowing artists to um, encode their digital artwork uh, scarcely in the blockchain. And we are pioneering a new form of patronage that's global, fluid, and native to the internet. And just to ground you in our traction, in the past three months alone, we've seen $250 million in bids placed on the platform and over $60 million in sales for artists. And in fact, 480 artists have already earned over five ETH, which in dollars terms is about over $15,000 on the platform. And so what does the product look like? Um, this, is, this is the product. Um, it's visual, it's elegant, it's clean, but it also is a decentralized crypto native platform. And what do I mean by that? Every interaction um, with this platform requires the use of cryptocurrency, the use of a non-custodial wallet, meaning a wallet that the user and the user alone or the artist is in charge of. And every artwork and every um, file that's uploaded by an artist or a creator is uploaded to a decentralized storage network, which means that the content in in this network is not locked onto foundation it is actually able to traverse what we call the metaverse, really, which is an open space that's not mediated by platforms. It's, it's available and decentralized to the user base. And so the, the product is, is straightforward in the sense that the interactions do make sense to a large number of people. You are participating in auctions. You're buying artwork. These are behaviors that have existed for hundreds and hundreds of years but we are now able to perform these actions on the internet natively 
in a fluid global context. So in this case, you're seeing a piece from Jimmy Edgar, auctioned on the platform, bids are being placed in Ethereum, uh, the auction is happening globally. You have bidders from London to the Middle East participating in the auction. Um, and every single interaction is public, transparent, and viewable on the blockchain. But to tell this story more clearly, I would prefer to actually tell it from the lens of the creators themselves. So in this case, you're seeing these are all artworks that are live on Foundation. Um, I'll point out a few folks here. You have the emoji portraits from young Jake. You have um, the artwork from Jimmy Edgar that you just saw. You have pieces from David Rudnick, uh, Raphael Rosendahl, Andrew Benson, Rachel Ross, and Ellie Pritz. These are all established digital artists that are now using Foundation to sell their work in a natively digital format. And I'm going to walk you through a variety of auctions that tell their stories. The first story I'd love to tell is the story of, of Nyan Cat. I would hope that many of you recognize this image immediately. I would argue it's probably more recognizable than the Mona Lisa, but for the entirety of its life, it has never been able to be sold by the actual creator, Chris Torres. On the 10th anniversary of this meme being released on the internet, Chris remastered the file, um, uploaded it to Foundation, and minted it as an NFT. He then auctioned it with real no expectation as to what the price of it would be. Ultimately, through the course of the auction, the piece went for 300 Ethereum. Uh, in today's terms, that would be almost a million dollars, if not more than a million dollars. Um, this is a creator that has never been able to monetize their work because it is digital. This is a person that had to you know, participate in merchandising or partnerships or a whole host of other kind of monetization paths instead of the actual work being recognized as an art piece and being able to be sold on the internet and being able to be owned by somebody. And it turns out people consider this meme incredibly valuable and he's, spur he's spurred a whole meme economy that exists on foundation. You've probably heard of other auctions that have gone for high profile prices as well. Um, and that's really, that's kind of memes on foundation. This is, this is the story of an Ethiopian artist collective. Um, they actually arrived on the platform this weekend, and I really felt compelled to include them in this presentation because I think the story is so compelling. This is a group of people that are in a country uh, where you can imagine the restrictions on currency and the access to global markets. Gallery representation is probably quite limited. Um, and they were able to mint works, um, gorgeous works, by the way, on foundation and sell to a global audience. They minted six pieces with us this weekend. They were able to sell it for a total of 40 Ethereum, um, which is actually totaling over $50,000. Um, these auctions took place globally with collectors all over the world participating. Uh, and the currency ultimately seamlessly delivered uh, to these artists in Ethiopia through the blockchain without any uh, obstacle around customs, foreign exchange, wire transfers that would have perhaps perhaps made this interaction impossible without blockchains and without foundation. Raphael Rosendahl, a very, very established net artist. And by net artist, I mean an artist who has used the internet as his medium. Uh, for decades, Raphael Rosendahl has been creating websites that he considered artworks and then using the gallery system 
that we all know in the analog world as the means in which to sell his artwork. Um, he has been able to embrace NFTs and sell his artwork now natively in its digital um, native context, and collectors have responded enormously, far more than they ever were able to in the old gallery model. Raphael Rosendahl, in his two-month career so far in foundation, has made over $1.3 million selling five NFTs. Um, his market is well-established. He has been an active net artist for decades. Only now is there a medium authentic to his practice that's able to allow collectors to truly engage with his work. And he is pioneering a completely new model of existence for artists. Musicians have arrived on Foundation. Aphex Twin, um, a very, very avant-garde, prominent musician, often leading new forms of creative expression. He was able to sell an NFT with his longtime collaborator, Weirdcore, also on the platform selling digital art. This is particularly poignant in a year in which artists, specifically musicians, um, have been very, very challenged without having um, touring, merchandising, the variety of revenue streams that uh, musicians are accustomed to, NFTs are offering an entirely new digitally native revenue stream that allowed artists such as Aphex Twin to, to thrive um, during this period. Photography is another category that's taking off. Photographers have been sharing their photos on Instagram to enormous viral success. I'd love to call out Ruben Wu here. Um, a, a, a photographer, I think, that really captures the digital medium well, combining both stunning photography with digital effects. Um, he's been able to make hundreds of thousands of dollars selling his photography on Foundation. And it should be noted that instead of this content being trapped behind a platform's rules, these pieces live on and are encoded into the blockchain and are accessible to anyone. And then lastly, I want to tell the story of our most high-profile auction to date. Edward Snowden joined the platform and minted an artwork. Um, the artwork includes the uh, court ruling that ruled that the NSA's surveillance program uh, was in fact illegal, and his photo um, is imprinted uh, or silhouetted from a famous photographer, Platon. Uh, this piece sold for 2,224 Ethereum. Um, in today's prices, that's $7.5 million. Uh, at the time of the auction, that was $5.5 million. Um, I do believe that the Freedom of the Press Foundation, which is now custodying these assets, holds on to cryptocurrency. So I do imagine uh, that they are now actually um, holding on to almost $7 million worth of cryptocurrency. Um, and this auction is really, really powerful because it actually speaks to the, to the emergent trends in the space. There was a bidding war uh, that took place, and it took place between two actors with very different properties. One was an individual, uh, very, very um, active in the collecting community, and really wanted to own this piece. The other was a Twitter organization, what we would call a DAO in, in kind of the more crypto native landscape. And they, and they actually corralled resources during the course of the auction, using smart contracts to pool those resources together and place bids uh, on foundation. And it turns out the collective was more capable than the individual and in raising their bids and won the auction. 
And I think that speaks to uh, a trend that we'll see where people come together and collectively pool resources together, use smart contracts to uh, govern their collective resources and make investments that no individual could. And that really ends the presentation. I really wanna leave the audience with the, the prompt to imagine this future. Uh, I think as every panelist will and guest today will speak to, we are at the beginning of this journey, not the end. Um, and, and this will really, I believe, impact every creative um, field that operates on the internet, whether or not that's a streetwear company sharing their designs, an artist uploading their work, um, brands creating new experiences for their fans. Um, the, there really is no limit at the moment to the creativity and ingenuity that is possible in this new creative economy. And a lot of this is happening on Foundation. And I encourage you to visit and experience it at foundation.app. And with that, I'll open it up to questions. Awesome, Kayvon, thank you so much. It's fantastic to get a sense of the incredible creativity and range of things that people are putting on Foundation. So super exciting. Um, we have tons of uh, questions from the audience. Um, let's see. And I'm happy to answer. <laughs> Perfect. Um, all right, the first one is, are creators interested in tracking the provenance of their pieces? What does that unlock for them? So whether or not they're interested is maybe um, not the way I'd frame it because they will become interested inevitably. The interesting thing about foundation and these crypto native experiences is every interaction on the platform is encoded on the blockchain. And why does this make provenance so powerful? Well, it, provenance is one of the most important aspects of what powers the existing art market that we have. And, that, and, and the provenance abilities are very limited because it's hard to keep track of everything. Blockchains make that digital, programmable, scalable. And so even something as simple as a bid in an auction where you lose the bid is relevant information because that really communicates to the community that, that at this point in time, this user was willing to pay this much money for the piece. And what that's going to allow artists to do is develop incredibly strong markets around their work that have clarity and transparency and, and provability. And so when you say, how much is the Snowden piece worth? Well, we have a record of, of multiple participants placing money in a smart contract uh, that prove that at that time, it was worth $5 million. Um, and that is actually incontrovertible. Anyone in the world can verify that. You do not have to ask me for permission or ask my take on it, that information is not proprietary in any way. It is entirely public. Right, um, and it's on I think chain, this is online. It's on, it's on chain, on the blockchain, anyone can verify that. Yep. And a lot of people's complaints about the existing art market is how opaque it is, how much smoke and mirrors there are. Um, this new art market and this new creative economy has transparency front and center. And that I think will actually explode the potential and possibilities because artists are empowered now to actually understand what's happening financially around their work. Right, that makes sense. Um, a sort of slightly on a, a different angle of, of questioning, um, more looking at the collector side. Um, yes. Have NFTs changed their base of collectors? So meaning there's this idea circulating that influencers would make the best investors in other influencers. 
almost like a peer review that could lend mm -hmm. authority to cultural tastemaking. Have NFTs made it possible for creators to become collectors or crypto investors? The answer is unequivocally yes. So on foundation, without a doubt, you are watching creators able to make sizable sales and you are watching the likes of Raphael Rosendahl, which is the, who is one of the most successful artists on foundation, immediately funnel his resources and his reputation into smaller artists who he believes are the next Raphael Rosendahl. And not only is he doing that um, kind of out of his own taste and financial benefit, he's doing it to create this new creative economy. We do think this is a key pillar of it. Um, and you're watching auctions where artists participate skyrocket in value because mm -hmm. other collectors are able to watch and verify on chain that artists are viewing this artist as a up and coming artist. And that is creating signal in the marketplace. It's creating new dynamics. It's creating new power structures and artists are at the forefront of it. And we actually could not be more excited about that trend. It's very meta, but also very cool that, you know, the yes. artists themselves can define what, you know, what becomes in vogue. And I think that it just shows to you the revolution that's happening here, which is that we are flipping power structures on their head. And that is why this is seemingly so topsy-turvy, because artists have not had these abilities in the prior markets and structures we've had. And they are now fully empowered to do this. And they are running with that power. Mm. That's awesome. That's I think that's kind of one of the most exciting revolutions in art uh, that we've seen in maybe centuries since the Renaissance. Um, people have people have cited that period of time many times, and it's going to be very fun in the coming decades to reflect back on this time as to whether or not it was that impactful. I will go on the record in saying that I think it will be um, a similar era in terms of its impact, given what we've seen in only just three months on Foundation. Wow, that's that's incredible. Um, all right, uh, I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions. Um, how do we ensure an artist is the legitimate owner of the original artwork being minted? For the Nyan Cat, for example, what if someone other than Chris had uploaded the art and sold its NFT? How is the provenance checked? So on Foundation, we have a number of checks. There's not just one. I think that it is true that anyone at any point could upload any artwork um, and mint it, but that it is not so simple as provenance accumulates. So on foundation, we require social verification. So we, we actually require you to attach um, both your Twitter and Instagram to prove your identity. Um, and we also ask that you come and be invited by another artist on the platform. All of those create um, really kind of like I would say not like off chain provenance, but in reality, we're in this very um, pivotal moment where we're moving to blockchain provenance. And for example, it will be very difficult now to actually spoof the Nyon Cat piece because every interaction around the Nyon Cat um, auction went on chain. And so you would need to recreate the entire provenance of that auction. And in reality, people also know when that happened, it already happened. So if you were to mint today, you would be minting something in the future, right? That doesn't map to when that auction took place. And you wouldn't have the same address as Chris. Um, and people now know his address and know when, it when pieces come from his address. And moreover, you would have to recreate an auction that went for a million dollars with participants all over the world. Um, and as artists, and moreover, Chris has released six more pieces with us. 
And so as you accumulate more and more history on the blockchain, it becomes more and more difficult. And so right now, yes, there are, there are moments where fraudulent work makes its way onto the blockchain, but it doesn't accumulate provenance. It's very quickly either shut down or identified as fraudulent and no one interacts with it. Whereas if you look at NyonCat, it is now a gold standard NFT that has lots and lots of provenance on chain that is immutable attached to it. Thanks. I think that's super helpful um, for the audience. And sort of a derivative question that came in in our last minute is um, if a consumer purchases on foundation, can they sell on other sites like OpenSea and still track provenance easily? Um, yes. I mean, it, it, it really, it really I, I cannot speak to what would happen on another platform, but NFTs on foundation um, are uploaded to IPFS, they're uploaded to the Ethereum blockchain. These are publicly available resources. Anyone in the world will have access to those. Um, people are using their own non-custodial wallets to move these assets and funds around. And so, yes, users are empowered, artists are empowered to use whatever platform they wish. Um, I cannot speak to the practices of another platform, but you know, if you brought the NFT to that platform, it would conform so long as they conform to the same standard, um, which is the ERC-721 standard. And also, we, we really do our best to also work with every other platform to ensure royalties go back to that original creator, because I believe that is the most important element of this new economy. Perfect. Thank you so much, Kayvon. That was great. And also a really good precursor to our conversation with People Pleaser a little bit later. So thank I'm you again. I'm very excited to learn more about that. Very excited. Yes, yes. Big reveal. Um, awesome. So our next session is a really exciting conversation about the Flow blockchain and one of the most talked about use cases in the ecosystem, NBA Top Shot. Dan Bonet, who you met earlier, will be joined by Dieter Shirley, co-creator of CryptoKitties, creator of the Ethereum standard ERC-721, chief architect of the Flow blockchain, and co-founder of Dapper Labs. So I will now hand it over to Dan to kick off the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Ariana. And uh, welcome, Dieter, for, for joining us. Um, so let's see. The first thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, since you, you're kind of the uh, creator of uh, Flow and the, uh, the Flow blockchain, Maybe you could walk us a little bit through the flow origin stories, sort of all the way from CryptoKitties to uh, where we are today. How did that come about? Sure thing. Uh, thanks so much, Dan. It's uh, great to be here and talking to you again. And uh, hello to the whole uh, whole audience listening. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, 2017, uh, you know, I worked for a company called Axiom Zen, uh, and we were always trying to make uh, uh, exciting new technologies um, and, uh, and, and just um, you know, creating new startups and then trying new ideas. Uh, it was a venture studio. And so uh, in 2017, everybody was going nuts for crypto. Um, and, but, you know, we were, we were a little disappointed that everything, everybody was uh, raising money to build things and so few people were building anything. Um, and so we wanted to build something that, that, uh, that people could interact with and, and play with right then and there. And um, and so we, we looked at a bunch of different ideas before we finally settled on, on creating CryptoKitties. Um, CryptoKitties, of course, uh, you know, I think exceeded everybody's expectations of, of what it could do. Um, unfortunately, we, it also exceeded uh, everybody's expectations of what Ethereum uh, could handle. Um, and so coming out of that experience with CryptoKitties, we, we, we realized that there were sort of three important uh, things that needed to 
be built um, in order for consumer blockchain to be a reality. Um, the first one, which we, we thought we did a great job uh, with our first swing, uh, was creating amazing content, something that appealed to people um, who weren't uh, into, you know, financial, uh, you know, ideas and, um, and for whom tokens are, are maybe a little bit too abstract, uh, something tangible that they could understand and, and something fun. Um, the second thing we realized is that we just needed to have a, a better uh, onboarding experience. Um, the number of people who were excited by CryptoKitties but couldn't get involved um, because they didn't want to install MetaMask or they didn't understand what the, the 12 uh, keywords for their seed phrase were or um, they didn't want to upload their passport to Coin, uh, uh, Coinbase in order to, to be able to buy their crypto. Um, that, was a, that was a huge barrier to adoption. And then, of course, the third thing was um, that we, we felt we needed uh, a higher capacity blockchain. Um, uh, we didn't expect that we were going to have to build the last one um, because, you know, everybody and their dog was, was uh, proposing new blockchain pro um, projects at that time. Um, but, of course, the, the most common way of, of hitting blockchain scale was uh, to use sharding. Um, and I think sharding works well, again, if you're focused on the financial use cases. Um, but we had a real vision for, again, more fun games, entertainment style products. And what we realized is, is that what Ethereum gave us and what Ethereum 2 is unfortunately going to be taking away from us is a single shared state space um, where every smart contract can talk to every other smart contract um, and, and maintain those you know, ACID uh, transaction guarantees that make the whole thing secure. Um, and as DApp developers, building on top of a sharded blockchain seemed uh, incredibly daunting to us. Building a smart contract that works, that doesn't have bugs, is hard enough already. Having to deal with a sharded state space um, and deal with asynchronous communication was a real problem. And so we designed Flow to be unsharded, um, while at the same time allowing for very large participation um, and, and maintaining that decentralization. Um, and, uh, and, and we did it by, by sort of splitting the, no the, the network into different types of nodes that have different roles, um, and which is sort of a, a different way of approaching blockchain uh, design. Um, and, you know, it's, it's up, it's working now, and we have lots of docs out if anyone has, um, wants more details into how that stuff works. And the, the sort of NBA Top Shot is sort of the largest application on the Flow blockchain at the moment. Exactly. We, we felt pretty strongly that, <clears throat> that you know, there was no point in uh, in sort of imagining that you know, if you build it, they would come. Right, that that time had passed. That just having a blockchain was enough. We knew that in order for people to want to to experiment with something new, they need to see how it worked. Um, they needed to engage with it. And so, NBA Top Shot um, has been running on Flow since day one. It's about a year now, um, and uh, it it shows what's possible on top of uh, on top of Flow. Um, so maybe just in one sentence, just to make sure everybody's on the same page, can you just say in one or two sentences, what is NBA Top Shot? Oh, sure thing. Um, so NBA Top Shot um, is a sports collectible uh, experience. Um, we take uh, some of the most amazing uh, moments in the game of basketball, um, and we capture those into limited edition collectibles. And so each of those uh, moments is, is, is captured as an NFT, um, and then we, we do uh, limited edition runs of those. 
Um, some are, you know, very rare, uh, as few as 49 uh, of a particular moment will be captured. Um, and then some of those are, are much more common into the uh, thousands or tens of thousands of copies. Um, and so, um, you know, and then, you know, the fun part is, is building up your collection and finding your favorite players and your favorite plays and, um, and you know, just capturing what, what basketball means to you uh, in, in your collection. And, and sports collectibles are a really good example of an NFT. Um, mm -hmm. could, you, could you say a little bit about uh, what was hard about building NBA Top Shot? Like uh, that's a very, very successful NFT that runs on the, on the Flow Network. You did something, you did something right. What was hard about building NBA Top Shot? Um, well, I think the hardest thing about building NBA Top Shot is that we started building NBA Top Shot before Flow was done. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, we, we had, uh, we, we had to start designing cause we were building an app and a blockchain at the same time. And so, you know, we knew sort of broad strokes, what flow was going to look like and, 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 you know, what it was capable of. Um, but you know, the APIs of how you would interact specifically that, you know, not all of those details were, were nailed down. Um, and so there are some things about NBA top shot that if we were to, uh, rebuild it today, uh, we would never, we would never do it that way. Um, and so. Um, you know, for example, you know, I think the, the most uh, obvious one is, is that there's a, there's a very tight link between the Dapper wallet um, and NBA Top Shot. You, there are no other wallets that work with NBA Top Shot today, and, and Dapper wallet doesn't work with any other dapps today. And of course, we're now having to, you know, do all the work to, uh, to separate those and, and, and uh, make, make the uh, open connection um, to, uh, to the rest of the ecosystem. Um, but at the time when we were starting to build this, there, you know, there was no definition of what that open ecosystem would look like. So the, I guess to also imagine beyond that, uh, the user experience, I imagine, took quite a lot of work to design. Is, did you have any kind of insights you can share with what does it take to build the user experience for, for such a successful, successful app? Well, I mean, th that part is, um, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess maybe for crypto people, that is the, the most daunting part. But, um, you know, I, I think... You know, we 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 just brought in people who um, had uh, experience, um, and we already had several of them on staff who who had experience building high polished consumer facing applications. Um, and you know, in a lot of cases, it's not uh, it's not rocket science. It's just having the will to actually do the hard thing. Um, you know, and I think I think the the onboarding um, uh, into Dapper is probably the thing that is you know, where the complexity beneath the service is, is, is so effectively hidden to the users that they don't realize what's happening. But um, I'm sure anyone who's ever run any kind of exchange or, or uh, uh, um, you know, crypto onboarding and offboarding service knows that the traditional fiat world of finance and the crypto world um, uh, of, of tokens, they do not play nicely with each other. One of them has a presumption that every transaction is undoable. Um, the other has the presumption that no transactions are undoable. Um, and that opens a, just an enormous uh, possibility for fraud. And so the, the complexity that went into Dapper Wallet um, so that users can just show up with an email address and a credit card and start buying NFTs um, and, and then trading them and, and for real money is, is truly extraordinary. So I think actually a lot of people are, are really curious, like uh, what would the, neg the negotiations with the NBA were like? Like uh, how how easy or difficult was that, or how did that go? Well, I mean, it's a big organization. They're you know they're they're not a they're not a scrappy startup willing to do anything, right? Like it, it, it obviously it took a long time, but one of the reasons we went with the NBA, um, you know, coming out of CryptoKitties, it, it was pretty easy for us to get meetings with people, IP holders who, who were 
willing to consider doing something in the NFT space. Um, and one of the reasons we love going with the NBA, and we, we signed that agreement back in, in 2018. Um, and, and so uh, it was because they were really, they were really committed to the long term. Um, this wasn't just an experiment to them. Uh, this wasn't just something that they, you know, like a, like a, a boost to the bottom line. Um, they were really committed to the idea that we should take our time. We should create an experience that felt authentic to a basketball fan. We should um, uh, have a long-term engagement so that um, what we were creating is something that people could have faith in over the long term. Um, and they wanted to work with us because they, they saw that we had put together a team that was really committed to making sure that the fans had a great experience and that those collectibles were, were meaningful um, and not just, you know, sort of, you know, putting these videos, uh, you know, just locking these videos onto the blockchain, but putting a whole uh, great user experience around it. Yeah, and I think a lot, a lot of the fans are uh, part of the reason why it's so successful is they actually get to engage with the players that, uh, of, you know, for the NFTs that, that, that they buy. This is like an amazing experience for the fans. So Yeah, I, I think... I would have never guessed that the players would have been as excited about it as they are. Um, I mean, I guess maybe in retrospect, it's obvious, but certainly early on when we, when we talked to some of the players um, uh, and um, you know, and, and we'd hear reports, I mean, I wasn't in those calls, but we'd hear reports from, from our, our team show the players, you know, demos of, of the app before it had been released. And, and, you know, for me, it was like, great. It was just like, we've captured the, you know, that basketball culture, that basketball vibe. Uh, and the players are into it, but I, I I wouldn't have guessed that the players would have been so excited about actually engaging and and trading in them. So yeah, and they actually interact with the fans, right? I mean, if oh yeah. Buys, yeah. If you're absolutely. a player and somebody buys your NFT, you actually engage with the fan, and that's yeah. actually uh, great for both sides. Exactly. So yeah. that's part of, part of the all, all the excitement about this. So uh, since you you're, you're like on the front line of this of this space, I have to kind of ask you. Um, what are the biggest challenges that you see in the NFT space? Like what, what would you like to ha to happen to take it to the next level? Or like, what do you think deserves attention from the community? Uh, what should the rest of us be working on? So what, like, what are the big challenges that you see facing us? Yeah, I think, I think a little legitimacy challenge is going to be the hardest one. Um, I think right now there's, there's, there aren't really enough, um, there hasn't been enough time for people to really know who are the teams that are like really committed to this, who are going to be, you know, have a, a multi-year uh, record of, of creating, supporting and growing these communities um, versus who is just sort of like, you know, YOLOing it and just trying to like, you know, capture the, the latest trend. Um, and so I think, I think that that's, that's going to be difficult. I think that the, there is going to be a period of time when there's a washout of, of some of these, these teams that maybe, you know, maybe they didn't even necessarily have bad intentions. They just bit off more than they could chew and, and didn't realize how, how complex what they were, they were implicitly promising to people really is. Um, you know, the good news is, is that provided that the NFTs are on a good blockchain, um, are, are supported by open infrastructure, um, at least the NFTs will uh, continue to exist. But unfortunately, we even are seeing NFTs being released on sort of relatively close platforms um, and, uh, it's, it's hard to say what the future of those will be. Um, and so I think, I think that's a, that's a really tough one. And then, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the other thing that I think is, is really challenging is, um, is just trying to figure out what the, um, 
I, I'm trying to get the right balance between uh, scarcity and, and abundance. Um, you know, these things matter um, because, um, you know, most of them are one of a kind or, or a very small number of, of a kind. Um, but, um, but that also is exclusionary. And, and so trying to find that balance so that everyone feels like they can get some, they can, they can engage in some way um, without it be just, you know, losing its, its, uh, its value as, you know, this is something that uh, very few people have. And that says something about me, I think is going to be really difficult. Um, and then on the technology side, it is, again, I think that, that, that um, it's, it's interacting with the traditional finance world. Um, not everyone wants to go in and out of, uh, in and out of tokens in order to engage with art. Um, and so how do you make it so that people can, can get that aspect of it without necessarily having to be aware of the fact that there, there are uh, these money-like tokens involved as well. So part of your advice is when you, when somebody buys an NFT, make sure it's actually on a reputable platform. So you really do have the permanence and the NFT can't be, right. can't be stolen. Yeah. Um, and I guess this, this other point you bring out is really important, which is today, I guess, to engage with NFTs is you have to deal with crypto, right? You have to get crypto tokens somehow. So you, you can buy, you can buy them and you're asking if there's a better, if there's an easier way to do that. Yeah. Is that, is that one of the, yeah, challenges? I mean, I think, I think the challenge is, is getting people in, in a way that is authentic, um, and easy. Um, and those two things maybe are at odds sometimes. And, and I think it's a lot of work to do, to do both at the same time. Yeah. Make, makes sense. Um, Thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to jump excellent. in, Dan. I'm going to steal Thanks, your, your microphone metaphorically. Uh, I want to make sure we get to a couple questions from the audience because once again, there are many. Um, so, Dieter, first of all, we're getting a lot of excitement around your background. So, curious if there's a story there, or if you can tell us what that's about. Um, so, this is yeah. So, this is one of the pieces of um, uh, of concept art uh, for NBA Top Shot. Um, we work with a, an exceptional artist who, who's created a number of these, um, and uh, and and yeah. So, this is a, I think it's a it's a beautiful thing and. Um, I, I don't know if you can see it entirely, but it, I think it really does capture uh, sort of that, that basketball vibe and that, that top shot vibe. Awesome. Very, very on brand for you. Perfect. Um, another question. By being on your own blockchain, don't you lose the opportunity for interoperability with the innovation taking place on open networks? For example, using Dapper Labs NFTs in the metaverses like Somnium Space or Decentraland? So... I, all of the um, all of the metaverses right now um, have the ability to sort of plug in for multiple chains. Um, you know whether or not they choose to is 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 going to be up to them. Um, but yeah, it was it was absolutely a difficult decision. Um, we loved the fact that we were part of uh, this bigger ecosystem, and, and CryptoKitties benefited enormously from that. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, CryptoKitties broke Ethereum with sort of you know, 10,000-ish users per day. Um, and you can't build a consumer company at that scale. It's, it's, it's simply untenable. And so there was really no choice that we needed to go somewhere else. And so then the question was, well, what, which, which of these new platforms is going to have the attributes that, that we need to build on uh, the kinds of experiences we want to build? Um, and, and the answer ended up being the one, the one we build ourselves. Yeah, so maybe a, a derivative question or a related one is... Um, what kind of apps do you see as a good fit for Flow? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, a, that's an excellent question. So, you know, um, right now, you know, Flow is, Flow is very young um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an early stage protocol. 
Um, and so we're working really closely with people who want to bring apps to flow. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the, the vibe that we want to create and the, the teams that we'll be able to spend the most time with and, and provide the most support to are the ones who really are doing something that is more consumer oriented, um, really appeals to people who aren't necessarily into crypto, although maybe it appeals to the fact, you know, some of the people who are crypto curious and, and haven't gotten into it yet. Um, and, uh, and which really uh, focuses on creating value for the user. Um, and, and, and what we mean by that is, is they're, they're trying to create things that people will not just want to sell, but also buy and own and hold. Um, and, and I think that, um, really having that focus on making something that, that people really, you know, want to hold onto in the long, long run, that's, that's a more sustainable for, for, for a business. Um, but it's also just makes it a much better experience for all the users as well. Right, that makes sense. Um, one last question, unfortunately, I think we we have enough for all day, but um, <laughs> let's see, one last one. Uh, any main learnings from building ERC-721? Any regrets on what should or should not have been in the standard? Hmm. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, we wrote ERC-721 concurrent with CryptoKitties, um, and, uh, and you know, obviously we learned a lot building CryptoKitties. Um, most of what, you know, the ERC finalized after CryptoKitties launched and most of it was fine. The one that, that I was pushing for and, and, and I felt like at first the most of the community was pushing against it and, and maybe it was the right thing to do in order to rush, uh, to, in order to, to, to get a resolution quickly. But that was the question of metadata um, and having like a standard way of saying, well, well what is this? What is this piece called? What is its, uh, you know, does it have a serial number? Does it have an artist associated with it? What is, is there a standardized way to get an image associated with this thing? Um, and, and that was, it was tough. And I mean, the reason why we threw it overboard was just, it was a classic bike shedding moment where uh, everyone and their dog had ideas about how that would work. And it was hard to sort of find that one, you know, minimum viable version of that, that everyone could agree on. Um, but I think in retrospect, it has led to, to some um, confusion and complexity uh, in the NFT space that, um, that perhaps we could have, could have avoided. Got it. Well, uh, fortunately, NFTs are flourishing regardless. So clearly, uh, you made a huge contribution to this space with that one. So I think we all, uh, we all appreciate it. Um, Thank you both, uh, Dan and Dieter. I would now like to bring back our general partner, Chris Dixon, who will be in conversation with Kevin Chu, who founded Kabam, the mobile gaming company, and is also the founder of Rally, an open network on Ethereum where creators can launch social tokens. Thank you, Kevin and Chris, for joining us. I will hand it over to Chris to take it away. Thank you, Ariana. Um... Hey, Kevin, how are you? Hey, Chris. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, can you maybe start by just telling folks what um, what is Rally? Rally is a social token project. Um, and when we say social token, we really mean both fungible and non-fungible. Uh, we actually started the, uh, the project three years ago as a non-fungible token project. And then as we were working through all the economics and the technology, we decided to start with fungible tokens first. Uh, but at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is take creators, um, 
uh, artists, communities, brands, and help them tokenize their their identities, put them online, enable fans and collectors and and um, and people all around the world to participate in economies that are being built, um, you know, by these by these unique uh, creators. So, could, just to kind of help explain, could you give an example of, of a social token? Yeah, I think uh, you know today we work with about 120 different creators. Um, one of our kind of earliest uh, and most successful has been a Grammy award-winning band called Portugal the Man. And what they wanted to do was create a new form of a fan club. And they were really excited in long time, you know, Bitcoin and other crypto enthusiasts. And as they learned more and more about what would be possible with their own social token and how to create true fan engagement and interactions and not just always be kind of cash grabbing, you know, from their fans, but really rewarding their fans and creating ways to participate and earn um, and grow with their fan base. Uh, that was one of the things that, that really excited them about creating a social token. Their fans um, have been creating music archives and sort of live concert footage for, for over a decade. And so they worked together with 14 of their super fans to create this new social token on Rally. And by holding a certain number of Rally, you get access to these music archives and kind of different hangouts and kind of a permanent you know, Discord backstage pass uh, alongside the band. Uh, and then the band is increasingly doing things like you know, virtual concerts and hangouts and other things where you pay a certain amount of social tokens and you get access to that, that type of event. Yeah, I kind of think of it as, so, you know, we just had Dieter from, from Dapper and NBA Top Shot on. Um, they're, you know, he, they're obviously creating NFTs and, uh, for a very large community, the NBA, right? And as is, I think, Kayvon earlier talking about the crypto art community, which is also sort of this, I mean, it's large, relatively speaking, probably hundreds of thousands of people kind of collecting and sort of participating. Um, I kind of think of what I, one way to think of social tokens and what you're doing is more on the sort of the, on the other side of the spectrum, on the smaller networks, not, not so small, but, but they, but they could be right. They could be a mm -hmm. community of a thousand or 10,000 people, which, which is really the bulk of the internet, right? Is smaller networks on discord, on Twitch, on YouTube, on Twitter, whatever it might be. And those folks who have those networks may have challenges today monetizing, right? Maybe they have an avid following, but like maybe they may have to make money offline or do something, you know, or they get sort of breadcrumbs through advertising. Or, um, and so you're trying to sort of provide a new model for those folks, the long tail. Is that, is that one way to think about kind of, and, yeah, and, and how, did, how did both fungible and non-fungible tokens fit into that? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a great point. So there's kind of two dimensions to this. One is I think we, we think a lot about how do uh, fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens coexist in the same economy. So if you think about a game, which is kind of my background uh, in terms of building games for over a decade, um, almost any game that you play, you were talking about Fortnite a little bit earlier, they use something called V-Bucks in the game, right? You can't, you know, whether you're playing in Europe, you're playing in the US, you're playing in Japan, you're not using yen, you're not using dollars, you know, put into that game and then buy the virtual assets, you're buying the V-Bucks first, and then all of the assets in the game are generally denominated in, in V-Bucks, right? And so when you have a built-in community, when you have an environment where everyone says, hey, we're going to use this currency uh, to, as a basis of the economy, uh, there's something really powerful about that. And a creator or any other community online, I think, has the ability to say, hey, we're going we're to create value in this new community together. And this token can represent kind of the, the community um, uh, all across the globe, and we're going to build value and denominate things in this um, in this new token. And that can be things like all sorts of different NFTs, uh, 
And so what, what we've wanted to create with Rally is a way to create both social tokens or fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens all working together in the same economy. That's kind of one kind of unique approach that we take. The second approach that we take is um, we have a sort of a, I don't know, WordPress-esque or, or Shopify-esque sort of way of thinking about things, which is we just want to, we want to make technology super simple. And I think, you know, uh, created my first uh, internet site in 1996, and it was a, it, it was difficult to create a website and get it hosted and, and, um, and, and get it working, um, you know, back then. And then, you know, WordPress comes along 15 years later, it just makes it super simple to stand up a, a new website. And I think we're, we're sort of at this, um, you know, maybe dot-com-esque era for crypto where, you know, kind of a, a it's getting into the mainstream, but the, the total number of users in, in crypto is still sort of in the tens of millions, you know, right now, not the billions that, you know, we see connected to the internet. And I think one of the um, things that have always proven true in technology is just by trying to lower the bar and making it easier and easier to uh, get into a new technology, uh, you sort of expand the top of the funnel. And by working with creators and musicians and, and athletes and others, um, YouTubers and Twitch streamers who have you know, reasonable size audiences, we try to make it pretty simple to have a first time crypto experience and then graduate into you know, deeper and deeper um, your Web3 experiences over time. Yeah, I remember Web2, in the Web2 era, sort of mid 2000s, they were similar. It reminded me of sort of crypto today. You had this enthusiastic community doing blogging and other kinds of social behaviors. And I think it was people were first starting to realize the internet could be kind of a two-way, like a true two-way medium kind of free. In fact, one of the most popular blogs at the time was called Read Write Web because it was yeah. instead of Read Only Web, it was Read Write. And that was sort of the big idea. And now, of course, we have Read Write and Value, right? Web3. Um, but, uh, and, then, and then, as you said, you know, in that case, it was like Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook and a bunch of things came along that just took all of these kind of this primordial soup of all of this inventive, excited enthusiasts and, and then made it so simple that anyone could, you know, in a few clicks, have a blog, have a Twitter feed, et cetera. And that's when it really just kind of took off. And, yeah, and, that's, and that's right. the hope is we're kind of at that cusp right now with crypto. And I, I think uh, you know today, if we look at crypto projects that are 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 doing significant things, you know you have a real you have a a great blockchain development team that knows you know smart contract you know, programming. You got to get together. You have to do a bunch of research on understanding economics, and then you know write a white paper to try to explain your economic ideas. It's it's complicated. It's like you know there, there's no uh, <clears throat> there's no set way of doing things, and the design space is very large. And for a creator or for a community or for a brand or an artist, what we try to do is simplify that and sort of you know, create these templates or these kind of ways that you can um, just kind of out of the box, have a social token, have a whole set of NFTs, have the ability to make additional NFTs you know, over time and our, our uh, coming NFT platform and just make it super simple. But it, it's sort of a, you know, I don't want to call it dumbed down, but it is it is just a basic set of, of, of things that are kind of all pre-assembled and you sort of open it up and then you can you can start there with just the, the standard package. And then over time, you can say, you know what, I want to customize this. I want to edit this. And then we, we try to make it easy to, to get started and then give you some powerful tools over time as you get more familiar um, you know, with crypto. Your background's in video games. Um, you were one of the early kind of mobile gaming entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I think there's, there's clearly a lot of really interesting kind of overlaps uh, with NFTs and gaming. 
Um, there's an emerging area people are calling play to earn games, which I think are very cool, where instead of the kind of the economy all only sort of uh, going back to the game creators, it's kind of a peer-to-peer -peer economy. Um, and there's sort of more and more games coming out that are doing that. Like, um, uh, anyways, so, um, you know, I guess, how do you see NFTs and gaming kind of growing and emerging in, over the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I think it's a really um, exciting space. And I, I think gaming is, is certainly one of the major kind of use cases or, or kind of virtual worlds uh, being one of the uh, major use cases for NFTs. And I think, you know, the gaming community has experimented with all sorts of economic designs around digital assets. Um, so I think a lot of the, a lot of the, um, a lot of what I see with NBA Top Shots, for example, is doing some really cool things that uh, um, you know, we, we've learned with uh, video games and you know, over the last couple of decades. Uh, but I think what we'll see is kind of not just, you know, collectible, NFTs aren't just going to be collectible items. Uh, there's going to be real, you know, a bunch of different use cases for them. In a gaming context, there's, of course, we, you had kind of given the earlier um, <clears throat> example of swords and other functional items. You certainly have cosmetic items uh, and fashion, you know, basically emerging as one of the really important areas of gaming and NFT use cases. So in that case, you're wearing it. It's the way that you or your digital avatar appears to others uh, in the gaming or virtual world ecosystem. I think there's going to be a whole <clears throat> incredibly rich uh, category now that you can create true and authenticated uh, scarcity, you know, of fashion. I think the kind of Supremes and, and other you know, equivalents will will start to emerge uh, in the metaverse. Um, you know, around that, uh, we have composable you know items in games. So a lot of things, you know, starting with MMORPGs 25 years ago, were things like I got to go and collect some leather scraps, and then I got to go and farm some. You know, um, uh, I got to go get some. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know something else in the game. And I basically put these two things together, and now I've got you know a horseback saddle that I can use. Um, and, and so the idea of like having to go collect a bunch of things and then put them together to create a new thing is uh, kind of one of the core things that we, we do in the gaming industry. And so I think we'll see that emerge in the NFT space where today we just kind of think about these NFTs as singular items, but what happens when you design them as sets uh, and people have to collect them almost like playing, you know, McDonald's Monopoly or something like that. I got to collect a bunch of them, put them together, and then that, that, that creates something new. Uh, so I think, you know, there's there's a number of different, um, uh, that's kind of one slice of or dimension of how NFTs evolve. And then I think the, you know, the the pricing and price discovery mechanisms around uh, NFTs will, will emerge as well. So I think today, um, you know, there's a lot of focus on auction, right? So when we think about Beeple or Blouse, you know, NFTs that grab the 69 million, you know, numbers and, and so forth. Those are those tend to be highest priced auction mechanisms, but you know I think um, the the reality is when we look at things like eBay, for example, where it was all auctions for a long time, and then people learned and eBay learned over time that actually people don't like auctions. Uh, there's certain classes of of items. Uh, if you're talking about a one of a kind, you know, piece of art, an auction mechanism is is the best way to do price discovery for them. But if you're just trying to buy a stapler, you know, on eBay. You know, it's probably you know an auction mechanism. You know, is not the best way to sell that item, right? And so, lots of different ways to uh, in the gaming space has really evolved to try to create lots of different ways to um, 
create price discovery and, and make the experience of buying something easier without escrows, without deposits, without having to deal with duration of time, you know, escrows or escrows and auctions um, to, to buy an item that you really want. Uh, so I think we're going to, you know, there's going to be a lot of that, that, that starts to happen now that we can <clears throat> go back to um, in, in the gaming space, experimenting with these assets that have real ownership attached to it. Yep. Great. Thank you, Kevin and Chris. Uh, I want to make sure we get to some audience questions. Um, so first one, someone says that they will be launching their social token very soon on Rally. Very exciting. Um, do you have any tips or suggestions for this emerging creator? Yes. Uh, well, well th thank you. Um, the, the the number one thing is to really Wait, this is it. a real question. It's we did not script this one. And I know it sounds staged, but I swear it's not. So. Kevin, you're so awesome. How do you how do you become so awesome? Uh, yeah, I swear we did nothing to do with this. Uh, so thank you guys for that. Um, the yeah, the number one thing is really thinking about building a community, and so creating ways for your fans to earn uh, tokens as you first create this token and launch it into the world. Uh, I think it's probably the most important thing is to really think about this as building a community online, getting a group of people who are going to be your most passionate followers and supporters. How do you get them engaged with creating you know, value together in this new online community that your uh, journey that you're embarking on? Yeah, I would just I would just add to that. Like I think this is the I think when we look back in this period and we say what sort of NFTs work and what didn't, the key dividing line will be community. Right. This is why CryptoPunks is so strong. This is why NBA Top Shot is so strong. And I think on contrast, you know, there's sort of these one-off transactional things happening now where there's really no community, which I think could be the which I think are the things that were less likely to work. Um, I don't know. So yeah, I can't emphasize it enough. The good news is there's, you know, we've spent 20 years collectively figuring out how to build communities on the internet. So now now we have a sort of a complementary piece of the puzzle, which is how to monetize it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, someone also asks, do you believe that the future of social tokens will be more about creating communities around single creators or large groups of creators? Uh, both. So I think there's, there's obviously people who are large enough where, uh, or, or you're large enough, you know, you pick up you know, your, your favorite NBA athlete or, or musician, uh, that's global fan communities. That's kind of a large enough single entity to to drive a, a very large you know community to spring up around them. Or clearly, community has already sprung up around them. Uh, and then I think there's there's others. Uh, for example, we have uh, the art token or Matty Mo. While he's an individual, he's always really focused on a collective of artists that he helps um, you know fund and and get started and promote their and they all promote each other's work. And they've just been doing incredible work uh, on Rally. Uh, and, and using you know OpenSea and other platforms to do their NFTs and using their social tokens as a way to uh, help fund and and um, you know uh, pay artists that are located all over the world. Uh, and so it's 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 really I, I think there's there's an opportunity for both to emerge. I think both will be equally strong. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think I think I can see a lot of potential in either of those two uh, directions. Um, on a more practical note, somebody asks, how does Rally make money? So I, I think there's um, a couple of, there's, there's different business models that are being explored. I'm personally, and the way that we've, we've shaped Rally is to follow in the footsteps of Bitcoin and Ethereum. 
And so we think a lot about creating a central use token um, and in sort of designing the network in such a way where rally tokens are kind of behind, under the hood, powering all the different social tokens and, and uh, NFTs and that if we create a network where individuals and communities are creating social tokens that are used by hundreds and thousands and eventually millions of people all throughout the world, that the rally token will be used to uh, as kind of collateral backing and a governance token to manage the network. And then that we are not trying to be a company, we're trying to really create a, a network um, where other businesses can build a business and not worry about Rally being a traditional company that's trying to uh, you know, earn revenues and do an IPO at some point and, and eventually potentially competing against our own ecosystem. So we believe very much that kind of especially in social, creating a decentralized network, which I, I believe starts with having a, a business model uh, or an economic model that does not incentivize a central company to exist at the core of the network is really important. And that's kind of how we design Rally um, is, is to follow in the footsteps of, of uh, some of the, the pioneering work that a few of these other projects have done. So a very, a very crypto native business model, which we're, right. we're very excited about. Um, great. So uh, someone else asked, do Rally's broad ranging applications and use cases make it more difficult to attract creators? For example, if Twitch streamers become the most obvious creator use case, will it be difficult to attract clothing brands to your platform? Uh, that's a, so we're definitely taking the path that is harder to get started. I will absolutely admit that. Mm -hmm. So because we create the, the platform in such a way that's truly community run, there's multitude of, of use cases and integration points. So people have integrated Rally into their Twitch um, you know, bots and, and OBS. They've integrated into Clubhouse now where there's um, kind of third-party apps that have APIs. They pull in the Rally um, stuff into those APIs to create applications that create like token holder only rooms, You know, for example. Uh, there's people that have like Jaws, uh, an EDM artist who has artists submitting tracks to him all the time. He's created an application that allows people to um, uh, submit tracks and then for all of his listeners to, to vote on the tracks and then boost the tracks that they like, you know, with their token. Uh, so they've created all sorts of these use cases. And it's much harder because we don't have like the singular thing, go to Rally.io and see everything happening. We really think about everything as trying to be as decentralized as possible. So we try to create you know, multiple ways that you can interact and use these social tokens where your audience already is, whether that's on Twitch, whether that's on Discord, whether that's on your own website. Um, I think ultimately that's really powerful because we don't want Rally brand or Rally to be at the center of what you as a creator are trying to do with your community, but it is harder to uh, get started. Obviously, a purpose-built, you know, clothing brand, you know, network will will clearly, you know, be maybe easier to understand uh, how to use if you're a clothing brand operator. Uh, but I think we we try to take the approach of, of creating, you know, kind of an easy to use but uh, pretty horizontal technology for any type of creator uh, and community to to create tokens uh, around. Perfect. Uh, well, thank you, Chris and Kevin. Um, this concludes our session. And um, yeah, thank you both so much. Thank you both. Thank you. All right. We are moving right into our next session to stay on time. I'm excited to introduce general partner Katie Hahn. Katie will be speaking with OpenSea co-founder and CEO Devin Fincer about the exciting applications of NFTs in the marketplace today and in the future. 
As a bit of background, OpenSea is the first and largest marketplace for user-owned digital goods, including art, trading cards, domains, and collectibles. It's now home to over 200 categories of products and over 4 million listed items. Katie, I am going to pass it over to you to kick off the conversation with Devin. Great, thank you, Ariana. Hi, Devin. Hey, Katie. How's it going? Doing well, thanks Great. for having me. Well, we've heard a lot of references today to OpenSea. So can you just tell me in your own words, like what does OpenSea do as a company? And then also how does it talk about interoperability with some other NFT projects? Sure. So OpenSea is a marketplace for NFTs. So you can think of us kind of like eBay or Amazon, a one-stop shop where you can go buy, sell, discover new NFT projects. Um, the other thing that we do is we allow you to explore any NFT that's on a blockchain. Um, and what's exciting from an interoperability perspective is that you can go and you can take your NFT from a project that we don't even know about, and you can go and you can sell it on OpenSea. And oftentimes uh, projects will kind of come out of thin air and start trading on OpenSea without us ever having to go and do special integrations uh, with them because it's all kind of built into the blockchain. That's sort of one of the magical things about it is you get uh, an open free market from day one, the moment you launch your NFT. And we've talked about this, Devin, but hence the name OpenSea. And you told me before you're, you're not an aquarium. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we, we like to think of, we didn't think of this when we first started, but uh, one of the ways that it's evolved is sort of the territory between nations, right? You have all these projects out there, but then you sort of have the open waters where NFTs can kind of exist in this, you know, free market environment where it's not wedded to a specific application, but, you know, it's just out there. Yeah. Uh, well, you talk about when you started and, you know, you've been building um, in the NFT space, you and Alex, your co-founder have been building in the NFT space since 2017, long before it was kind of cool, um, I would say. And what, what do you attribute this sudden explosion and in interest in NFTs to? Yeah, well, even back then, we thought it was really cool. And I think a lot of the people who started back then, you know, the Dapper Labs folks and CryptoKitties team really were very captivated by this technology. And what I would attribute the recent growth to is really just the hard work of a, a lot of people really making the NFT space an actual thing as opposed to just an idea. So um, back when CryptoKitties started, really the only application you could interact with with regards to NFTs was specifically CryptoKitties. Um, now there's you know dozens of different art projects. There's uh, dozens of different wallets, uh, thousands of different creators who've come on board and started making NFTs. Um, there's virtual worlds where you can bring your NFT inside of the virtual world and it's displayed inside of a museum. There's so much stuff that has been built. Um, and of course, there were a few events that sort of threw fuel on the fire, right? You saw the launch of NBA Top Shot. Um, you saw the big art sales from Beeple. But I don't. I really don't think that any of this could have happened without the gradual buildup of the sort of early adopter tech enthusiast community just really cranking on building high quality new experiences for people to uh, try out with regards to NFTs. Yeah, great. Well, the infrastructure certainly come a long way. Um, and there are a lot of people building in this space now. Um, one thing that you mentioned is, well, you mentioned a lot of use cases and I want to dive right into those. But before we do, um, you know, we, we think about NFTs when people are first starting to hear about them, really 
affiliate that with digital art. But of course, NFTs are about much more than digital art. We, we started hearing about music, collectibles, but even now things like turning tweets into NFTs and blogs into NFTs. Like Devin, what characteristics, what can and can't be turned into an NFT, I guess is my question. Like what characteristics make something good for becoming an NFT versus not? Yeah, I think ultimately what we're talking about is the tokenization of everything, right? If you look, if you actually zoom back and you think about kind of the beginning of Bitcoin and, and all of the kind of crazy wave that we saw in 2017 with financial assets, that was really this trend of tokenizing all of the finance world, right? Um, but now what people are realizing is that there's this whole class of digital and perhaps even physical assets that can be tokenized that really don't have as much to do with you know, cryptocurrency, but really just have to do with kind of the regular internet that people are used to. Um, and what's exciting is that there's, I would actually maybe bucket into two categories. One is there's the existing landscape of digital assets. So all of the things you mentioned, right? Game items, event tickets, domain names, um, you know, maybe even your Twitter handle could, could be an NFT one day. Um, but then there's the, so the, those are the existing ones. And then there's the new markets that, you know, are sort of haven't even really been dreamed of yet. And digital art, I would say, falls under that category. Digital art just really wasn't a market um, three years ago. And now we're it's becoming one, um, which is really exciting to see. It's super weird and wacky. You know, you have these really expensive uh, pieces that sell for tens of millions of dollars, but it's establishing itself as a category. And I think maybe one of the uh, sort of challenges for the audience is what are other markets that, you know, are sort of like, things that we, we haven't even really thought of yet. Um, but to answer the question directly, I, I really think that there's very few things that you couldn't sort of leverage this technology um, to, to really create, create a market around. Well, you mentioned kind of physical and um, the digital and merging those two worlds. Like, how do you think about NFTs in that context? Like something I wonder about is, you know, you talked about ticketing, right? Obviously right now we have um, physical tickets we can hold in our hands or backstage passes. Talk to me about merging the physical and the digital worlds um, with NFTs. And by the way, like, why would I want a, uh, an NFT as a ticket uh, or backstage pass instead of physical? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple pieces to it. Um, with an NFT, the exciting thing about it is the moment you turn something in an NFT, it sort of plugs into all of the existing like crypto infrastructure. So when you make an NFT, what do you kind of get out of the box? One is you get a marketplace, right? You can go and buy and sell it on OpenSea. So you sort of get some degree of, at least as long as there's some demand for your NFT, you get some degree of liquidity. Um, you also get, you can plug it into the crypto DeFi ecosystem. So if it's a high value NFT, you can imagine taking a loan out on that NFT. And again, all of this stuff doesn't require any, you know, talking to like specific companies or any integration overhead. It's just, you basically get this with that primitive. So why tokenize a physical asset? Well, um, one of the interesting things is, and, and we're starting to see, see experiments with this is people uh, are are holding in, in their own custody physical items, but issuing NFTs for them so that they can be traded around many times before they're actually redeemed for the physical asset. And that's interesting because then they can basically be plugged into that free market crypto ecosystem um, without sort of having to kind of build your own peer-to-peer -peer marketplace where you 
that you know you'd potentially have to be transferring that asset many different times from person to person every time it sells. You can instead get all the benefits of tokenization. Now it's not necessarily going to work for every single physical asset uh, immediately, um, but we are already starting to see some interesting experiments with people trying that out. It sounds like the extra piece then that NFTs provide in the concept in the context of physical goods, which is the words that come to mind when you're describing this, is more freedom. Right and and more choice for people who own the good. Um, mm -hmm. They could go sell it, like you said. They could go trade it. They could use it as collateral. So it sounds like that. That's what NFTs give um, over just the physical item. Is that correct? Yeah, and I, I would say they they give access to sort of a brand new economy of of in a very early economy centered around blockchain and crypto. Right, and uh, plugging into that economy has some pretty interesting benefits. Well, you've mentioned, and I know you and I have talked um, several times about the different use cases you see, and I always find that really exciting. Talk about some, you mentioned museums. Um, can you talk a little bit about virtual land and um, some different use cases? Because I always think that's really exciting when you start talking about that. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of kind of what's going on in the uh, virtual world space. And I think one thing to remember with that particular space is it does take time for these things to evolve. So especially kind of when you're dealing with things that are game related that you know have longer development cycles than your traditional web applications, these things are, are pretty early, but they're, they're really getting quite interesting. So um, with regards to virtual land, um, the idea is that you could have a virtual world um, with, with essentially plots of land where if you buy the land, you can then build on top of the land, like a, you know, like you would with regular real estate, right? Um, and so, in fact, OpenSea as a company, we were looking to set up a headquarters in one of these virtual worlds. And I actually went to sort of the equivalent of a virtual real estate agent to figure out how, you know, how do I get a good deal because the, the land was a, a was somewhat pricey. Um, so now you have you have the economy around the land, and then what's interesting about that is you you can build, you know build houses on top of this, build museums on top of it. And what you can do is you can bring in NFTs from other projects, right? So for example, in one of these virtual worlds called CryptoVoxels, um, a big thing that people are making are museums of CryptoPunks, which CryptoPunks, for those of you who aren't familiar, is kind of one of those most famous uh, early NFT projects. I like to call it kind of the first candidate for a true digital antique. Um, but people are creating these, these museums of crypto pumps inside of uh, crypto voxels. Um, and you could even imagine as time goes on, um, it being um, possible to bring in NFTs that represent something more sophisticated than just an art piece. So in my background here, I've got a, um, a Zed Run racehorse, and there's a game centered around racing these, these virtual horses, but you can imagine bringing those horses into a, a virtual world. And again, there's, there's no direct affiliation between this project and those virtual world projects, um, but they all kind of interoperate really nicely. So that's why I think um, virtual worlds are exciting. They're kind of a, a first glimpse at, at some sort of metaverse type uh, ecosystem involved. Yeah, when you talk about virtual land, I think about all of the limitations in the physical world, like zoning laws, right, or restrictions and easements, like how do you think about that in a virtual context with virtual land? 
Well, I'm no expert on this, so I'm just sort of speculating, but I actually have heard talks of similar sort of restrictions, right? So, you know, you don't want like the casino next to the school or something like that, right? Like some, you know, similar types of um, policies that can be implemented. Um, what's interesting is, you know, we have had these sort of virtual economies uh, for quite some time. If you look at Second Life, it was a quite a large economy, um, but the the thing about it was, um, you know, it's a closed economy, right? So it's centrally controlled. And that's fine. Like, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with the centrally controlled game economy. Um, and they will continue to sort of persist. But there's a whole design space that you can explore if you decided to create a free market economy. Um, and that's what some of these virtual worlds are experimenting with is allowing people to essentially transact in crypto, uh, be a lot more entrepreneurial, and then have the assets sort of backed up in a much more robust way than they would if they were just um, on a, a central game server. Um, but I, I think to answer your question, uh, a lot of the same problems that we have in the physical world will start to, uh, to emerge as well. Wow, that's so interesting. In talking about um, kind of things like projects like Decentraland um, and virtual land, what else do you see other than just museums? And then obviously those, those virtual museums are populated with NFTs, you mentioned that. Um, do you think we'll see storefronts kind of crop up or all of the things? Like what other kind of use cases would you see in these virtual worlds? Yeah, a couple of cool ones that um, we've seen are, um, so storefronts for sure. So now there's like wearable clothing inside of Decentraland. I think there's even some some like fashion going on in, in Decentraland. So storefronts for, for purchasing um, fashion items and things like that. Uh, those those are starting to become uh, more of a use case. The other one that I think has been big this last year is virtual events, right? So I actually went to a concert inside of Decentraland. It was uh, it was funny. Like everyone was kind of emoting, um, and you know, like it was mainly like you know people chatting and like it, I think it still there's still some development to be done there. Um, but it it was kind of cool um, to to sort of have this. Um, you know, these virtual events where anyone can pop in and, and attend. Um, so those are, yeah, those are two uh, things I'm excited about. And then there, there are sort of games inside of the virtual worlds as well. So like um, there's a game called Battle Racers that built their entire game on top of Decentraland. Um, so those types of these cases are interesting as well. Wow. What about for on the creator side, like what benefits do creators get? Um, you know, I imagine, for example, you talked about you just went to a virtual concert. Imagine the tickets were NFTs. Is that a correct? Is I that think it was free to attend. So there okay. Okay. <laughs> but imagine um, if tickets had been NFTs to attend a virtual yeah. concert or a virtual event. What kind of things then do creators get out of doing um, tickets or backstage passes hmm. with NFTs? Yeah, well, generally speaking, I think what's exciting for creators is that creators can have a much more direct relationship with the people who want to support them. So if you think about Instagram today, you're creating all of this interesting content, but much most of the value is being captured by the platform itself, kind of due to how the business models work, right? Advertising-based business models don't typically give a lot of revenue back to the people who are contributing the, the content. So NFTs really change the math, right? Now you're essentially selling a digital asset and, and receiving um, revenue directly from that sale, um, as opposed to this more indirect business model where you're sort of beholden to the platform. Um, and what I think is 
interesting about that is you can sort of layer on various degrees of utility. So you could have NFTs that are pure collectibles where really you're just buying the asset to kind of support that person. And you're, you're hoping that um, there will, you know, maybe, maybe you're just buying it you know, out of pure support, or you're maybe thinking that there'll be some resale value if that person um, becomes more successful in the future, or you can layer on um, utility around, you know, backstage passes or event tickets or like a free chat with, uh, you know, a dinner with someone, those sorts of things. It's really the world is your oyster when it comes to what you could attach to the NFT. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's kind of early days for experimenting, but there's, you know, I think there's already a lot of creators who are starting to realize that this is a huge opportunity. Yeah, I'm all of a sudden thinking no more mailing lists, right? Like there's no need for that, no need for spam email um, because it, it allows people to interact, these creators to interact directly with their fans or people who want to use these products and services. That's right, yeah. Um, you've talked about also mixing or remixing NFTs. Can you describe what you mean when you talk about that, um, just for those in the audience who aren't familiar with the concept? I think this is super interesting. Sure. So this was actually something that was talked a lot about when NFTs sort of first started, which was this idea that you know now you have more and more NFT projects, you have these assets that are owned by users, and you can sort of compose them in interesting ways. So um, one of the folks who works with us at OpenSea today, uh, he actually built uh, maybe one of the first kind of layer two games on top of CryptoKitties back then. So what he did was he said, oh, you know, it's pretty cool that you own your CryptoKitty. Well, maybe you could accessorize it with uh, a hat, right? And so he built a game called Kitty Hats, which again, had no affiliation, direct affiliation with CryptoKitties, but they launched their own NFTs. And then when you bought these hat NFTs, you could like add them to your, to your CryptoKitty. Even going a step further, you could imagine like, you know, maybe there's some other game out there where, uh, you know, it's like crypto puppies, uh, again, completely separate game, but you could then a third party developer could come and they could say, instead of creating my own NFT project, I'm just going to, you, I'm just going to say, okay, bring your own crypto kitty, bring your own crypto puppy, and then I'll create this game that allows you to battle the two, right. Um, versus, you know, started starting from scratch. Now, a lot of this stuff, I'll admit, is uh, a little bit far out, um, and it, I wouldn't say that much of it has come to fruition quite yet. Um, but I think um, you know we're 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 still in the infrastructural phase, and once this becomes just such a basic primitive that you know you can really rely on um, you know people be, being able to bring their own NFTs to an application, then some of these other more sophisticated things I think could um, be really interesting to experiment with. Yeah, and I think some of these, like you weren't even imagining, right? Like I, I remember you telling a story recently, can maybe you could share this with the audience about the um, designer that you met uh, through the, or maybe you didn't meet her, but the, uh, who was studying and paid off for, yeah. for student loans. Can you tell that story just to demonstrate the breadth of how <laughs> we don't even know what's coming in this in this space? Totally, yeah. So I think, um, you know, there, there are now a lot of folks who are, uh, who either have been in the, um, crypto art scene for some time or starting to explore it and are really making a name for themselves in this new niche. Um, so for example, I was giving a talk at the Fashion Institute of Technology um, about, uh, you know, kind of educating people on, on how they could get involved. And I had, I heard from the instructor that one of the students who um, had gone to the talk last year before everything was 
so crazy, um, had basically, you know, started um, becoming a, a crypto artist and, and publishing her work um, and had paid off, you know, had made enough money doing that, that she was able to pay off her student loans. Um, and then you, you also hear about people who are kind of quitting their day jobs and, and doing this full time. Now, I'm not suggesting that people necessarily do that, um, but it is really interesting to see sort of the jobs of the future emerge, right? Where um, a long, you know, a while ago when and folks are still worried about kind of uh, the effect of automation on, on jobs, but there was this idea that there would be a new class of jobs uh, that, that would emerge from kind of these, these technological trends. Um, and this is, you know, this is sort of one of those examples, right? Where people like that virtual real estate agent are now taking on completely new forms of work because there's new uh, asset classes and new demand coming. Right. Well, maybe also we know a lot of commercial lease space is available in certain cities after, you know, COVID, but um, it, it is interesting when you talk about virtual real estate agents, and this is actually a category that we're starting to see. Um, and, and I think that just demonstrates the breadth of this category. It's not really just about digital art. Even that is a huge category. Um, uh, last, last question I'll ask you is, is that horse behind you? Are you racing that actual horse in, uh, in the game that you mentioned? Yeah. So what I'm excited about with this horse, so this is a horse from a game called uh, Zed Run. Um, and, uh, what I really like about this game is that it's built on, uh, a layer two technology called Matic. Um, and, uh, we, we just launched the ability to buy and sell these horses. And it's a really, um, we didn't really touch on this in this talk, but I'm sure one thing that has been mentioned is just how tricky it is uh, at the moment to buy and sell NFTs on something like Ethereum due to the high transaction costs. So I'm really excited about this experience, which lowers the uh, cost and makes it a you know, much more enjoyable experience. Awesome. So I encourage people to try it out. Awesome. Well, I see Ariana coming to uh, boot us off the virtual <laughs> stage. Um, I will say, Devin, Chris Dixon has another horse. He gave me his name. I see you have one. I'm going to go acquire one. And Rambo, we are going, Rambo, we are going to go race. Thank you so much, Devin, for joining us. Um, this is really exciting. Thanks for having me. Thank you both. That was fantastic. All right. We are now, shockingly, already at the last speaker. Um, we are super excited for digital artist People Pleaser to be joining us. So for those who don't know her yet, People Pleaser is the artist behind the iconic Uniswap NFT that was purchased by the first of its kind Decentralized Autonomous Organization, or DAO, for over half a million dollars worth of Ethereum last month. In this next session on the Accidental Art DAO, People Pleaser is going to share her unique artist perspective on the importance of DAOs and the interplay between NFTs and DeFi. I really encourage all of you to stay with us until the end because we have a very special preview of her latest NFT that she created just for this event. People Pleaser, thank you so much for joining us today. I will hand it over to you to get started. So hi, I'm People Pleaser and I'm a digital artist. Uh, and today I'll be telling a quick story of the accidental art DAO and why it's so significant. Um, so really quick background on myself. Uh, during my freshman year of college, I watched Wally uh, for the first time, and then I decided this is what I want to do for the future. So then I went on Google, looked at how to get a job at Pixar, and then I self-taught 3D outside of classes. 
While I did not get the job at Pixar, sadly, I did end up pursuing a career and working on several movies and animation features. Um, and having dabbled since in cryptocurrencies since 2017, I had always wondered if there was a way that I could use my animation skill set to uh, tap into the world of cryptocurrencies. So I thought, why not make cool animations that also serve an educational purpose? And so uh, this actually goes beyond just slapping on an ETH logo or putting a 3D Bitcoin into my pieces. But instead, I realized that I actually had to, uh, in order to really engage with the community, I had to really understand the concepts myself. So I'm just going to dive really quickly into why DAOs are so important or, I mean, what even is a DAO? And Linda Shia from Scalar Capital put it in a really nice way and said that uh, DAOs, which stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization is a group organized around a mission uh, that coordinates through a shared set of rules that are enforced on blockchain. Uh, and Gmoney on Twitter uh, also put it nicely and said that, long story short, DAOs are for like-minded ind individuals. So if you agree with their mission statement and what they're trying to do, then you should join them. But every DAO will likely have a different mandate. Um, so it's having the hive mind of like-minded people working together for the same goal, essentially. And PleaserDAO has their own philosophy, kind of. So um, mainly they aim to become the patron of the non-fungible landscape, both in terms of allocation of artistic and novel NFT assets, as well as in-house software development, and also funding nascent teams. And uh, it'll be a triple point DAO focusing on three components. Uh, so portfolio, investment, and incubation. Um, basically, the idea is that Pleaser DAO comprises of a lot of really talented and prominent and diverse um, talent within the DeFi space. So they prefer to focus on innovative and programmatic concepts and also artists that they deem important within the DeFi ecosystem. And the incubation part will focus on building out ideas that they generate, which can be spun into protocols or even maybe companies if the ideas are grand enough. And then the investment part will harness sort of top tier deal flows uh, to support skill teams. And then they can accumulate that value back into the DAO. Uh, and so I, I actually noticed a lot of the narratives surrounding NFTs lately, especially in the press and stuff, uh, have been focusing on the huge wealth generated by popular artists or you know, focusing on a very, very sp specific group of people. And I mean, it's, it's a totally empathizable human quality to want to rise above others and excel. Uh, but I think it kind of loses the point of decentralization. And it's also not really my personal vision or goal. Uh, and I don't think is... Uh, part of pleaser DAOs either. And then so this concept became very clear to me when I was uh, auctioning off the Uniswap NFT. Uh, it was always part of the plan to uh, donate the proceeds. But uh, on the other hand, I was thinking that uh, in a video that's so near and dear to the DeFi community as a whole would feel really strange belonging to the hands of just one collector or one person. And so the fact that a DAO was formed and then ended up bidding and then also won it was just the most random <laughs> and unexpected, but best possible outcome that could have happened from this auction. So hence why it's the accidental art DAO, but a nice one. And um, one that aims to sort of target like doing good as well, which I think is pretty important to all of us. And then also 
they're very, very interested in exploring sort of the concepts of uh, merging DeFi and NFTs. And here's just an example. So for example, please your can fractionalize their NFTs and then the fractionalized pieces can then be sold for Ethereum, which goes back into the DAO and then buyers can stake their fractionalized pieces to earn DAO tokens, which are uh, government governance tokens, which are tokens that represent shares of the DAO, allowing participation, governance decisions, and so forth. Um, and then more complex uh, ideas could be like, um, a virt virtual piece that lends out its own components, uh, which is done sort of like a DeFi loan. And then there can be interesting experiments done there with inflation curves or interest rate curves tied to how much demand there is to borrow these components. Uh, that's just another idea that uh, we had. And so to sort of tie everything together, I wanted to talk about the relationship between the rise of DAOs recently and also the sort of increasing complexity of the world because the more complexity of demands like placed upon collective humans uh, system surges, the more it exceeds the ability of any single individual person to fully be able to understand them. And so I think this is why DAOs are so important because as that complexity rises, then you need sort of a, an Avengers team of uh, people who are sort of talented in their own field to come together. And I actually think that it's a beautiful analogy to tie in with 3D animation, because that's kind of how it works as well, is that one person can't really create a Pixar movie, but when you have a lot of people who are each talented in their own specific field uh, down the animation pipeline, they can all come together and then make a really complex and beautiful animation which is kind of like the concept of a DAO, really. So um, yeah, I think since the Uniswap animation, uh, I've been laying a little bit low, but working on a little something that I'm excited to finally share with everyone at the summit, which is my second NFT that I'm going to be auctioning. And it's called Apes Together Strong, and the title is an homage to all the crypto community. And the Mecca Ape represents the DAO in that it requires human control and uh, coordination, but it comes together as a larger force. If anybody has seen Pacific Rim, it's basically like that. Uh, and then the girl in the mask could be either a people pleaser or somebody who's leading the way of the DAO. And if you look closely, there's a letter A on the helmet of the ape and 16 letters Z's distributed across the fingers and toes, which is a subtle nod to Andreessen Horowitz. And the, this time the proceeds will be committed to charities involved with autism advocacy, information and support, and will be minted and listed for auction on foundation after my talk, which is now or in a bit. So yeah, thanks for listening to my talk. <laughs> Wow, thank you so much, People Pleaser. I love all of the symbolism in the piece and I'm so thrilled that we could share it here for the first time with our summit audience. Um, I think the, the uh, comments coming in from the audience are like, whoa, amazing, beautiful. Uh, I just wanna say I'm blown away. So, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely resonating with the audience as well. So thank you again for, for putting this together. Um, yeah, the link is on the slide, but we'll also, I'll send out a tweet later too, so. Perfect, so people can find it. Um, great, before we, um, before we move along, uh, I think we'd, we'd love to get a couple um, 
questions from the audience answered. So the first one is, how has interacting with your fan community influenced your art, if at all? Um, I mean, I, I, I just think that anything that involves making your audience feel something is a way of interacting. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's like the main goal that I aim to achieve whenever I make something. Well, based on the comments, I think you're succeeding with that. So <laughs> absolutely. Um, one more question. A lot of art acts as social commentary. The inherently social nature of NFTs from its digital nature to its portability, to its provenance, to where it gets value. In combination with strong commitments enabled by smart contract technology, offers a perhaps natural opportunity to mobilize on top of that commentary. How are people using NFTs to assemble and create change? Well, I think, for example, the Snowden NFT is a really good one um, where when you look at it itself, uh, well, obviously the piece itself um, being minted by Snowden and uh, already carries a lot of uh, significance, but you know, also that it, being that it goes for a good cause, it funds the freedom of press, which is something that I think all a lot of people within the crypto community really care about. Um, so that's, I think, an example of in, um, something that's being used like to create change. Um, and I think there's probably way more uh, NFT projects that are happening right now that are kind of like slipping my mind because there's just like so many, but yeah, that's like the first um, example that I can think of. Perfect. Well, thank you again, People Pleaser. I know I am certainly super excited to keep following your work in the NFT space. And I know that the audience is too. Um, for those who want to bid or follow along with the live auction of Apes Together Strong, you can visit People Pleasers page on Foundation using the link in the chat um, that will also be tweeted out as People Pleaser mentioned. The NFT will be minted and listed following the event. And as a reminder, the auction will benefit charities supporting autism advocacy. So much to my chagrin, we have now come to the end of our NFT summit. Uh, again, on behalf of Andreessen Horowitz and the Stanford Center for Blockchain Research, we want to thank you so much for spending a couple of hours with us. We hope you enjoyed today's sessions. And if you have two minutes, please go ahead and scan the QR code on the screen to take a quick survey. As we mentioned at the beginning, we've recorded all of today's sessions and they will be available after the event. You can look out for an email with more details on where you can find this and other content from our crypto team. You can also follow us on Twitter at A16Z and at Stanford CBR. Thank you so much, everyone.